today is Tuesday, December 22nd, 2020. And on Tuesdays, we have Mr. Dwaskin that presents his In the Headlines program. So Mr. Dwaskin, the floor is yours. Thank you, Angela. Uh, can you hear me well, Angela, everyone? Yes, I can hear you well. Yeah. Okay, so hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to our kind of getting to the end of the year um, current events uh, class. As I mentioned last week, the subject that I would like to speak about today is about Morocco and uh, also about the Moroccan Jewish community um, as a kind of a sideline of that. Uh, Morocco is actually in the news these days for two reasons. One of which I'm sure you all know and one of which I'm sure you probably don't know. We'll start with the one that you don't know. Um, this week, the dish couscous was recognized by UNESCO as a World Heritage Food Dish. And the submission to that was made by, jointly by Morocco, uh, Algeria, and Tunisia, which are the three countries where couscous is um, eaten uh, practically daily, if not every week for sure. And uh, it's a dish, of course, that's spread around the world and especially in Moroccan communities abroad. The second, of course, reason is that uh, the announcement was made that Morocco and Israel were going to um, make diplomatic relations and recognize each other. This push was done by the uh, Trump um, administration and uh, the offer made to Morocco was that um, if Morocco recognized is Israel and establishes diplomatic relations, then the United States will recognize Morocco's annexation of the Western Sahara area. And we'll get into that, uh, you know, in due course. So these are, you know, uh, a very good reason to uh, discuss this wonderful country. Uh, I personally made a three-week trip there a few years back and would very, very much highly recommend it um, because it's such an amazingly interesting country, a safe country, a welcoming country, and uh, an inexpensive country to visit. So, uh, you know, once things get going again, um, and if any of you have the uh, sort of yen to travel, uh, that's a very good choice to make. So let's, uh, let, let me kind of, let me try this again. You know, sometimes I show you a map. Let's see how this is going to look. Let's see, kind of, let's see. Okay, not bad. Okay, so uh, this is kind of a map. Let me get my pen over here. So here you have, here you have Spain. And here you have the uh, opening to the Atlantic Ocean. And here you have this very narrow Strait of Gibraltar. You see how narrow it is. And then you get into the Mediterranean Sea. So Morocco is located in Africa on the very far northwest corner of Africa. Uh, it's as far west as you can go in Africa. Interestingly enough about Morocco is that they have quite a few mountain ranges. You see there's one here parallel to the coast. And there are two parallel mountain ranges going down north to south. And these are called the Atlas and the Anti-Atlas Mountains. And the presence of these mountains assures Morocco of its uh, rainfall. 
because when the rain comes from the Atlantic Ocean like this, it hits the mountains. Where's my pen here? There, I see it. It hits the mountains, it dumps a bunch of rain, it skips over one bunch of mountains, and then any leftover rain, it hits the next bunch. And by the time it gets over the last bunch of mountains, you're already into the desert. So um, all of this rainfall in the mountains, of course, finds its way down into these very fertile valleys along the coast and along in the middle here. And um, that's why Morocco is a country, although it's an Arab country in Africa, it has quite a, a lot of adequate water uh, all season long. So that's what is interesting about it. Then as you go further south, you get into the desert, actually into the Sahara Desert. Now at the very bottom of Morocco, you'll see this line over here. This was the old border between Morocco and what used to be called the Spanish Sahara. Um, when, uh, you know, in the olden days, Spain colonized a whole lot of places, including this kind of desert area here. Um, and I'm going to pick up, up another map. Let me just see what this one, there you go. So you, you see, this is the line as a continuation. Look how far down it goes, right? Until the bottom here in Mauritania and you're already into Central Africa. So the length of the, of the former Spanish Sahara is almost the same length as Morocco itself from north to south. But the only difference being that the Spanish Sahara has no water at all. It's, it's the western end of the Sahara Desert. Uh, not a lot of people live there. Um, and there's not much economic activity, but it's an enormous piece of land. And as we will get to later, Morocco sort of uh, jumped in and took it after the Spanish left. And um, uh, they've been fighting over this piece of territory since the 70s. Uh, now that the U.S. has stepped in, it might change the sort of status that Morocco has vis-a-vis uh, -vis this uh, occupied territory. It's interesting that this is an occupied territory kind of in the same uh, in the same kind of, uh, we'll call it, um, status as the occupied territories that Israel uh, took over uh, in uh, 1967. Um, and uh, the Moroccan government sent uh, hundreds of thousands of Moroccans to live there to stabilize their claim over it. But you never hear about world um, boycotts of Morocco because of the occupation of Western Sahara. So it's uh, the, the BDS movement is a bit selective. You think they would jump on Morocco first, but anyway, that's a side story. So um, Morocco in uh, its name in Arabic is Maghreb and you probably heard that name to refer to all of the uh, sort of Northwestern part of Africa. And Maghreb means uh, West. It's related to the Hebrew word marav, which is uh, west, and erev, which is evening, because the evening is where the sun sets in the west. Um, the word Morocco is, comes from the Spanish version of the name of Marrakesh, which is in Spanish, Marruecos. Uh, Marruecos is, um, you know, the Spanish version of, of how to say Marrakesh, and from that they just took the name for the whole country. Um, 
its uh, population is roughly the same as Canada's, 37 million, pretty well almost the same. Um, and uh, it's a kind of a lower middle income country. So the purchasing power per uh, person is around $9,300 US. Um, at one point it was selected by the Economist magazine as the best, uh, the best quality of life in Africa for any African country. It's since slipped a few spots, but its quality of life is still quite, um, quite high. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, Morocco has been inhabited for at least 300,000 years by us, Homo sapiens people. They found some of the oldest remains any, anywhere in the world of our ancestors there in Morocco. Um, the uh, people who lived there in historic times first are the Berber people. And the Berber people are a people spread out um, kind of in that region, Morocco and Algeria, into Libya even. Um, and these were the kind of original inhabitants. In my research, it was interesting to find out that the Berber people genetically are very closely related and most closely related to the um, natives of Lapland in uh, Sweden and in Finland. Um, called the Sami people, you know, we used to, we used to call them Laplanders. Um, and you know, you wonder why. <clears throat> uh, and the best explanation is, is that after the ice age started to end, some group of that people just sort of went north and followed the ice sheet north um, until they ended up in, uh, in uh, Sweden and Finland. And that's where they are today. So uh, an interesting fact. Um, being on the coast, as you might, might have noticed, I could tell you again, but Morocco is on the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, uh, sorry, and the Mediterranean Sea, because that the Straits of Gibraltar separate the two. And so it's a very strategic location uh, because it guards the entrance to the Mediterranean on the south. And the Phoenicians were the ones who set up colonies there. And they even set up colonies, imagine, on the Atlantic coast. So think of it, these are people who originated in Lebanon. They sailed all the way by ship through the whole Mediterranean, came out into the fierce Atlantic Ocean and settled themselves down on some ports on the Atlantic Ocean. So it's really, you know, for people who lived um, uh, pretty well 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago without any technology to speak of, it's an amazing achievement. Um, the Phoenicians' uh, uh, fought, um, uh, successes were called the Carthaginians. They were sort of the same group of people. And then the Romans took over from them. And the Romans put colonies there in uh, Morocco itself. When I visited Morocco, uh, they took us to the farthest Western Roman colony uh, or city in, in the world. Um, uh, at the time, and um, you know, it was quite well preserved, and you know, it was quite amazingly sort of technologically advanced for a time when they had no no modern amenities. You know, the you know, hot water and showers and baths and everything else. Um, 
the Berber people uh, were uh, the ones who, uh, who, st who stayed there and um, who were the inhabitants, uh, you know, the main inhabitants, because any Roman colonizers uh, sort of left when the Roman Empire fell. Um, and Islam came to North Africa and came to Morocco in very early on, in the 650s. And um, uh, interestingly enough, the Berbers adopted Islam, but they didn't adopt the Arabic language that went along with it. Uh, they kept their own language and customs. Um, and in those days, in those days, uh, the Muslim world was one big kingdom. First, it was ruled from Baghdad, and after it was ruled from Damascus. And both these uh, places are, you know, very far away from Morocco. So it encouraged local sort of chieftains to rebel against the um, leadership of the Islamic State and to take over themselves. And that's what some of these Berbers did a few times. Um, in 711, the famous, uh, the famous date, um, and the store is named after that, I think. But in 711, the, um, the Berbers invaded Spain from uh, Morocco. They crossed that narrow strait of Gibraltar they made their way into Spain, and slowly but surely they conquered Spain and some, most of Spain and most of Portugal. Uh, and they stayed there from in the 700s all the way up to 1492. So this is 700 years of, um, of uh, uh, we'll call it Arab Berber rule in Spain, uh, Islamic rule for sure. And, uh, you know, that was the period when uh, at, at its height in the 1200s was the most uh, greatest extent of that kingdom. And as you probably all know, there were some very good times for the people there. They built an enormously wealthy state. Uh, Jews and Christians uh, were allowed to live there as protected minorities. And uh, they interchanged, of course, ideas. And um, that is how the wisdom of the ancient world of Greece, uh, Aristotle, spread uh, from uh, translation into Arabic back into translation into Latin and then from there back into the Western world. So in a certain sense, you could say that the Europeans would have been in the Dark Ages much longer had the Muslims uh, and their um, uh, and their associates, the Jews and Christians of Spain, uh, you know, not thrived in that country for 200 odd years. Um, the, um, the, of course, the Christian, uh, uh, we'll call it kingdoms, um, slowly tried to recapture Spain, which they did. Uh, gradually, it took them about 300 years to do it. But by 1492, the last uh, Moroccan kingdom, Granada, uh, Arab Muslim kingdom, was defeated. And um, the uh, 1492 marks, of course, the same year that all of the Jews were told to leave Spain. And, um, you know, in actual fact, they were given a choice to be killed 
to convert to Christianity or to leave Spain. And uh, nobody took choice number one. Uh, not few, some people took choice number two, and most people took choice number three. So when they decided to leave Spain, where could they go? They had two easy exits. One was to Portugal, to the west, and one was to Morocco, to the south. So, um, you know, uh, the ones who went to Morocco, to the south, sort of reestablished their lives there, but they brought with them a kind of a more open and modern way of thinking that they developed in Spain and, way, and, a, and architecture um, and customs and everything. And uh, they kind of in a bit revitalized the sort of whole Moroccan, uh, Moroccan uh, state. Um, Muslim refugees left in, uh, Spain also, even more than the Jewish ones, and they also went to Morocco. So it was a whole upheaval in the 1500s uh, of bringing kind of a European flavor to what was a conservative uh, religious society. Um, in um, the uh, 1600s, uh, a dynasty was established called the Alawites, the Alawites. And uh, this dynasty is the one which is still in rule of Morocco today. This dynasty was established by someone who claimed direct descent from Mohammed. And, you know, when you make that claim, it gives you such prestige that uh, people are afraid to um, do anything against you because uh, it's almost as if you're kind of trying to insult the prophet and to do harm to the prophet himself. So uh, this dynasty has lasted, one of the longest lasting ones, uh, since the 1600s. The enemies that Morocco faced were Spain on the north, of course, and the Ottoman Empire on the east. So the Ottoman Empire, which sort of grew also in the 1500s, reached all the way to Algeria. Imagine, you know, from Turkey all the way around the, um, the uh, eastern Mediterranean, through Egypt, through Libya, through Tunisia, Algeria. And uh, when they got to Morocco, they just kind of ran out of steam. Uh, you know, it was too far and not worth them to fight. The Berber people are a tremendous uh, reputation for fighters, both guerrilla fighters and army fighters. And the Ottomans just stopped at that point. Um, Spain, on the other hand, made several incursions into Morocco, some successful, some not. And uh, these were the, uh, in the 1600s, these were their, the big, uh, you know, challenges. But Morocco was an independent country in, um, in, the, seven, in the 1700s. One of their sources of income was piracy. So in other words, obviously, ships that passed through the Straits of Gibraltar uh, were sort of easy prey for pirates that existed along the coast. And this coast was not only in Morocco, but also in Algeria. And these, call, these pirates were called the Barbary Pirates, um, <clears throat> maybe from the Berber name. And when the United States became independent in 1777, Guess which was the first real country to recognize the United States? I mean, remember, they were still fighting with Great Britain until 1783. Which country in the world was the first to recognize the US? Believe it or not, it was Morocco. 
and they signed a treaty. Um, uh, they signed the treaty in 1786 that said that U.S. ships would not be subject to piracy in the Mediterranean. So this treaty is the um, longest lasting treaty that was still in effect uh, that the United States ever signed with anybody. Um, um, now, of course, uh, you know, when the 1800s rolled around and um, Europe became modern and strong and uh, Africa remained sort of pre-industrial and weak, it was only a matter of time before European powers sort of tried to uh, take us, um, you know, make a next stage to take over Africa. And as you probably all know, uh, you know, at one point or other, um, every single African country except Ethiopia uh, and Liberia, you could say, was occupied by one of the uh, European colonial powers. And this happened to Morocco also in stages. Um, in 1830, France captured Algeria and um, then became interested in Morocco. Uh, in the 1880s, Spain invaded and took over uh, the north coast of Morocco, the coast close to Spain. Um, uh, by 1904, um, the two countries signed a kind of an agreement of a, for zones of influence. Um, and uh, so what was so interesting is that they, the two countries kind of agreed to share Morocco but the other countries in Europe didn't like that idea and they quarreled with them and said, no, we don't want you, uh, you know, to take over territory, uh, not because of the good feeling toward Mor the Moroccan people, but, you know, because of um, uh, inter-European uh, rivalries. But by 1912, Morocco became a protector of, a protectorate of France, the southern part of the country. Well, actually, all of the country except for the very far northern part of the country. So Spain took the northern coast of Morocco. We're going to show you here, go back on this map. Here we are. So kind of all of this, remember here's Spain here. So Spain took over kind of this whole northern piece like this. And they also took over the Sahara south of Spain, south of Morocco. So remember I was saying they, they took over all this territory over here. And they even had a few enclaves within what was Morocco itself, small little spots, uh, two of which spots they still hold to this very day. One is called Ceuta uh, up over here, and one is called Malia up, Malia up over there. And those two places, those two places still belong to Spain to this very day. Um, and uh, Morocco, of course, claims them but the Spanish built a wall with barbed wire around the um, around those two cities, not, not to keep out the Moroccans, but to keep out migrants from Africa, from West Africa, who by getting into those two cities would already be in Europe. And then they could claim diplomatic asylum uh, or refugee status, and then, you know, be shipped from those cities to anywhere they want to go in Europe. So Spain built this very high protective zone of those two cities, Ceuta is one and Malia is the other one. And uh, those two cities are still part and parcel of Spain. They vote in Spanish elections and um, you know, they are 
you know, territorially Spain. And there's a couple of small islands kind of off the coast that are also in that category. Um, so by the time uh, 1912 rolls around then Morocco is no longer an independent country, but at the same time, they're not a colony. So uh, they weren't run um, part and parcel by the colonial powers. They, the king of Morocco was still a king. Uh, the Sultan of Morocco was still uh, respected and still had power. Um, but uh, the, um, you know, the sort of boss of bosses were the colonial powers. In the meantime, of course, when the colonialists got in there, the French did and built all kinds of infrastructure, roads, uh, railways, telecommunications. Uh, they opened up modern schools, uh, hospitals. Uh, they brought a kind of um, a European uh, culture to Morocco. At the same time, uh, there were somewhere close to 500,000 Europeans who went to settle in Morocco because to help the administration uh, to live in a country which is very pleasant um, and very cheap to live in. And so uh, these Europeans established homes there and stayed there pretty well until independence came some 50, uh, 40 odd years later when most of them left. But all, not all of them, but most of them. Um, Morocco served um, as the um, staging post for General Franco when he uh, um, took his army from Morocco, crossed the Straits of Gibraltar into Spain and slowly made his way uh, toward Madrid in the uh, Spanish Civil War 1936 to 39. So Morocco was kind of his backyard and it was his source of um, reservists and soldiers uh, who he paid to fight for the um, nationalist cause in the Civil War. Um, there was a big rebellion by the Berbers in the 20s against Spain. And uh, this rebellion lasted for five years and cost Spain 13,000 soldiers. When the Second World War broke out, um, at first, the uh, Vichy administration of France uh, took over, uh, of course, the administration of Morocco. And, um, you know, as time went on in the war and anti-Jewish uh, actions got stronger, the Vichy government asked the king of Morocco for a list of all the Jews in the country, uh, of which there were somewhere around 250,000 at the time. And very famously, the king of Morocco, who is uh, called Mohammed V, he said, uh, there are no Jews in this country, they're only Moroccans, and refused to hand over anything. And so the uh, population, the Jewish population of Morocco did not suffer directly the, the, you know, the brutality of uh, the uh, German occupation um, in uh, Europe. Um, Morocco was also the staging point, you might remember, for General Eisenhower when they decided to invade Europe. He came there first to plan and to uh, sort of coordinate action. So by that time already, the Morocco had passed into the hands of the uh, free French forces and, um, 
and uh, you know uh, served as a kind of a staging point point to the battle in Europe in the 1944-45. So um, you know in that period then there began to be calls for independence in Morocco because the people didn't like uh, the Vichy administration. And um, after the war, the uh, king uh, said, you know, we think we should be uh, independent of France. And for that, he was picked up and exiled to Madagascar in, in 1953. Uh, so the riots broke out, of course, and he was brought back in 55. And in 1956, uh, Morocco became officially independent from France. Uh, it joined a kind of a French uh, friendship league, we'll call it, you know, a trading uh, uh, arrangement. But Morocco became independent uh, in 1956. Algeria, its neighbor, of course, had to fight a, a war against France and a civil war before they became independent in 1963. But uh, Morocco managed to do this in a peaceful way and to maintain, importantly, the important point is that Morocco maintained very friendly and peaceful re relations with France so that uh, the French um, uh, sort of, a, uh, we'll call it the brain trust that were in Morocco um, were not kicked out of the country uh, uh, and, and then Morocco would have to pick up the pieces and start all over again. It was a kind of a, um, you know, uh, we'll call it a continuous transfer of, um, uh, of authority from France to the independent state of Morocco. So Morocco is established as an independent state. Its uh, king becomes the leader of the country. It's not a democratic country. It wasn't a democratic country, but they did have an, a parliament and they did have elections and they did have sort of uh, political parties. It's just that the powers that this government had were not all that strong. And the power uh, stayed mainly you know, in the king and then the royal family. Um, but as I said before, the royal family was very respected uh, you know, because of their descendants from Mohammed and also because they showed um, a kind of a caring for the population at least in the, in the case of Mohammed V, uh, who was the sort of leader of the independence. Um, when Morocco became independent in 1956, Spain gave up its part of Morocco, the northern part. So the two parts joined together, um, you know, to make one country. Uh, but interestingly enough, of course, the Spanish language became the second language in the north and French became the second language in the south. In fact, uh, French is so predominant in Morocco that even to this very day, um, you know, uh, practically every educated person in the country speaks French. Um, French is the language of business. Uh, the French signs are everywhere, uh, even public signs and street signs. Um, it's, 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 uh, you know, certainly when I went there, it was 100% possible to get around in French. And I only met one single person who couldn't speak French in my whole three weeks that I was there. Obviously, of course, I'm a tourist. So, you know, they have to speak something uh, to tourism. Um, in uh, the King Mohammed died in, in uh, 1961 and his son Hassan II became king.
Um, and uh, elections were held, but uh, Hassan didn't have the same personality as his father, and he was more, uh, we'll call it authoritarian. And this authoritarianism led to riots, repressions, arrests, and you know the the uh, the usual um, we'll call it re repressive repressive regimes where uh, you can tolerate the dissent so long as it's not too uh, critical. Um, when um, the seventies rolled around, Spain decided to give up all of its colonies. And among other things, it gave up the, uh, what was called then Spanish Sahara. Um, now, what it did was it said, okay, uh, we're going to establish a trusteeship between Morocco in the North and Mauritania in the South, the two countries that border the uh, Spanish Sahara. And we'll let those two countries figure out what to do with it. Well, uh, King Hassan said, I know what to do with it. I'm sending in my army. And so he invaded uh, the Spanish Sahara uh, and uh, took it all, took it over. Uh, the Mauritanians kind of didn't have the willpower or the uh, money or ability to um, confront the Moroccans and they didn't really care about that territory. And so Morocco ended up taking it over but the people who were against this were backed by neighboring Algeria and they formed a kind of a liberation front called the Polisario uh, Sahara Liberation Front. And these two sides, in other words, the Polisario Saharan people versus the Moroccans have been fighting since the seventies over this um, uh, huge piece of territory. Um, what ended up happening is that the Moroccans built a, uh, an earth wall completely north to south in the, in the Sahara. Let me just show you a map over here. So imagine here, here's this bottom piece of Sahara. So two thirds, two -thirds the way across, from the ocean, yeah, here's, here's the ocean over here. Here's the ocean over two thirds the way across. The Moroccans built what's called an earth berm, B-E-R-M, a berm, a kind of an earth wall. And they sort of kept everything from the ocean to the berm. And the Polisarios kept, you know, took over everything in the desert uh, right next to Algeria over here. And that remains the situation right up till today. Uh, there were hundreds of thousands of refugees who moved uh, into Algeria from the uh, Moroccan-controlled territory. And, uh, you know, this is one of these unfinished pieces of business um, uh, or frozen conflicts, as they used to be called, uh, over this vast but empty territory. So, um, you know, that's why it's in the news today, because the U.S., firmly put its thumb on the Moroccan side of the scale. And, um, you know, in thankfulness to that, Morocco said, oh, we'll establish diplomatic relations with Israel. It's a, it's a bit of an odd thing, because you say, you ask, well, what does the U.S. get out of it? But, um, you know, the Trump administration was very uh, anxious to show strong support for Israel, and particularly for the Netanyahu government. 
And, um, and so this is the reward uh, that was given to Israel, um, you know, for, uh, um, you know, for the Americans uh, um, recognizing Morocco's uh, rule over the, over the Sahara. So it's actually, the territory today is called the Western Sahara, actually, not Spanish Sahara. Um, in, um, in, uh, 1998, there were the first uh, it's actually one of the, a mark of democracy, we should remind ourselves today, is not to have elections and not to have elections where all the votes are counted, but to have elections where all the votes are counted and the party in power loses and gives up power. That's the mark of democracy. And oddly enough, in the United States, there seems to be a, for the very first time, a, a throwback to... Um, you know, we'll call it Soviet-style elections, where uh, the party in power can never lose, no matter how many votes it gets. <clears throat> so the Moroccan state actually allowed a transfer of peaceful transfer of power from a kind of a royalist regime to a Islamic um, uh, Islamic political party, which took over the government in 1998. Um, King Hassan died in the next year, and the current king, Mohammed VI, took over, and he's the king till today. He visited the Sahara to kind of put the stamp of Morocco on it, um, and um, uh, in 2011, you may all remember that the Arab Spring took place, these protests that started almost next door in Tunisia. Uh, where a fruit seller burnt himself to death because of the oh, bad economic conditions and as a protest of the government. And that spread like wildfire. Uh, the protest spread all around the Arab world. It resulted, of course, in uh, Gaddafi getting kicked out in Libya, in uh, Mr. Ben Ali getting kicked out in Tunisia, uh, in the civil war in Syria, which is still going on. Um, in, uh, you know, protests and revolutions uh, in Egypt. And, uh, you know, it sort of took the Arab world by a huge, uh, you know, in a huge wave of popular protests. What's so interesting is that the countries in the Arab world that had a royal family, like in Saudi Arabia or like in the United Arab Emirates or in Bahrain or in Qatar uh, or in Morocco, that none of these royals were kicked out, that the people respected the royals enough and the royal families where there were protests gave in to the protesters enough that uh, there was no revolution to speak of. Uh, so there were protests in Morocco, the king liberalized the government and uh, the protests kind of uh, died down. There were reforms uh, to make the country even more democratic than it was. Um, 
But, you know, as I said, in Morocco, the king is a religious official and not just a political official. So that gives him his uh, kind of insulation from the people. So Morocco is a pro-Western, pro-Arab and pro-African country. It, it's interesting to, you know, you may not realize this, but the people in Morocco have a very strong African identity. And it's not just an Arab identity or just not just a Muslim identity, but it is a very strong uh, African identity. And there's a lot of cultural interchange between the Africans to the south and uh, Morocco itself. And of course, many Africans live in Morocco too. Uh, many uh, black Africans uh, live in Morocco too. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Moroccan uh, economy. Um, the, um, the one source of, well, it's got several, re several resources. One, its biggest export resource is phosphates, which, are, which, is made, which is fertilizer. And that's also, by the way, the biggest resource in the Sahara uh, part of, uh, of uh, Morocco. Uh, the US just recently put on a tariff on Moroccan phosphates for whatever reason, because Trump loves tariffs. Um, but the number two resource that Morocco has is tourism. And as I said to you before, tourism is is what's considered to be the key to the salvation of the economy until COVID hit. Um, the Moroccans were hoping that they'd have 20 million tourists by 2020 and, um, you know, 20 million tourists a year, which of course is a huge number. And as you, as you all know, or should know, tourism is a fantastic economic resource for a country because it provides so many jobs jobs for um, uh, hotels, taxis, tour guides, restaurants, uh, souvenir stores, um, you know, you name it. All these places employ thousands of people and it, it takes nothing from the country. It's not like it's a polluting industry. It's not like it, um, it, it draws resources from other aspects of the economy. It's a, it's a kind of a pure gain for an economy. And Morocco is such a wonderful place to visit for tourists because of the varied geography in the country. Um, in those mountains that I showed you before, they actually have a winter resort and winter ski hills. And they built a city in the mountains which is supposed to look like Switzerland. So the, the architectural uh, laws say that everything has to look like Switzerland and they build little chalets and triangular shaped roofs and um, all this kind of stuff. And they have ski hills and ski toes, uh, which operate every winter. Um, there's also the desert that people are interested to see, a pure desert, which we visited, um, you know, with sand dunes and camels and, uh, you know, oases and things like that. There's the beautiful seashore where Europeans love to go to spend holidays just by the sea in uh, Agadir, Morocco. And then there's the um, wonderful cities of Casablanca, Fes, Marrakesh, uh, Tangier, which have unbelievable markets, uh, Marrakesh, you know, walled cities, um, really, uh, you know, phenomenal architecture, mosques uh, going back to the 1400s. It's, it's an amazing place to visit. That's what all, all I could say. And a lot of people do like it. 
And because it's so close to Spain, lots of people take day trips uh, to Morocco from Spain, uh, obviously going to Tangier, uh, shopping and things like that. So uh, it's, um, you know, I saw them uh, developing condos for people to buy, uh, you know, as second homes for Europeans. So they really, because it's a kind of an open country and a tolerant country, um, they don't have the sort of um, prohibition on alcohol that you might find in other Arab countries. Um, there are plenty of tourists that go, you know, dressed like Europeans do. So it's a very open and tolerant and hospitable place. And uh, tourists love it. And uh, hopefully they'll get back. The other great resource that uh, Morocco has is agriculture because it's such a Mediterranean climate. They grow uh, tons and tons of olives uh, for making olive oil, uh, and tomatoes and other fruits and vegetables uh, that are sent to Europe. They have those oranges, uh, clementines that we get here too, of course. A lot of Moroccan olive oil, there, there's so many olive trees in Morocco when we were traveling there that you know, we would go on a bus and practically travel a whole day and see nothing but olive trees. So all of these olives are pressed into oil. The oil is shipped to Italy and bottled there. And then on the bottle, it says product of Italy. So kind of, it's a bit of a, you call it a fake a product, but it is sent in bulk to Italy and put in bottles in Italy. So I guess they call it product of Italy. Um, another thing Morocco is famous for is this argon oil, which uh, is uh, for people who know what it is, it comes from a nut of the argon tree and it's, uh, these nuts are collected by hand by women and um, they're pressed into oil and this oil has got all kinds of fabulous qualities to it, um, you know, especially for your skin and hair and things like that. And we were taken naturally to an argon collective uh, cooperative where the women were cracking the nuts by hand, one by one, and pressing the oil. And, you know, it was a nice little visit for there, for that. Um, uh, so, you know, there's beet and the food, of course, is phenomenal. As I said, couscous, tagine, uh, you know, Moroccan food is really quite wonderful. Um, and so for tourists, it's really a great thing to, to do. Um, however, however, when, because Morocco was so close to Europe and because it is still much poorer than Europe, there have been millions of Moroccans emigrating out of the country to um, France, to um, Belgium, to Spain, uh, to Holland, and these people work there and settle down there and send money home, uh, as many, you know, uh, emigrants do from poorer countries. So there are today millions of Moroccans who live in Europe. Um, and uh, that's that. Um, as far as, um, as, far as uh, languages go, interestingly enough, Morocco has taken an extremely liberal a viewpoint and recognize the Berber language officially. Um, and so today Arabic and Berber are the two official languages, although French is the one that's used beside Arabic all the time. Um, and um, 
the Arabic that's spoken in Morocco is not the same as the Arabic spoken in, uh, let's say, the Middle East, uh, in Israel or in uh, Egypt or in Saudi Arabia. Uh, those people could not understand um, uh, Moroccan Arabic. It's a separate dialect called Darija. Uh, and um, it is, uh, when it's written, of course, it's all the same but the accent used in speaking it is so different that um, it's not really understandable. The children in school do learn standard Arabic, um, but they speak uh, their own dialect, which is the same dialect, roughly not the same, but similar dialect spoken in Algeria and Tunisia also. Um, Morocco also has... Um, you know, very good roads and facilities, and they actually have a high-speed train, which they just inaugurated two years ago between Tangier and Casablanca. They also have one of the largest solar power um, installations in the world. And so uh, it is a uh, country which is, um, um, you know, kind of, uh, you could almost say that it's in the middle between Europe and Africa in that sense, or it's a westernized Arab country, uh, a moderate Arab country. And, um, you know, uh, uh, they've managed uh, reasonably well to, to uh, make their way, you know, uh, up till now. And they've also had, you know, cases of COVID, but not, nothing, too, nothing too drastic. In fact, all of Africa has hardly been affected and severely by COVID to this point, you know. South Africa is the one with the most um, uh, cases so far, as far as we know anyway, because we may not know the truth. But, um, you know, they can't shut down these countries because uh, they're, uh, uh, you know, their whole lives are outside. Um, uh, let me just say this before we get on to that, that uh, the Berber language is spoken today by 30% of the people, but more than half of the people in the country are of Berber origin. So many, many of these Berbers became sort of Arabized and, uh, you know, the, the language is not really used as a written language today, but it's spoken, but they're teaching it in school and they have Berber radio and Berber TV. So it's, it, they that language and those people have, have um, advanced more there than in, um, uh, we'll say, in Algeria or in Tunisia or in Libya uh, or in Mauritania where the other Berber populations live. Um, uh, and, you know, Spanish, as I said, and French is still used very commonly. So. So that's a bit uh, of the story of them. Let's just speak just a little bit about the Jewish Moroccan, Moroccan Jews, because it's a, it's a unique kind of um, group of people, a unique population. Um, they come from mixed backgrounds. So some came with the Romans. And, um, you know, when, when, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 uh, AD, some Jews made their way as far as Morocco, and many of them came from Spain, as I said before, when they were kicked out of Spain. Um, and they established a, a very uh, sort of indigenous style community. 
Some of them uh, kind of merged with Berber population. Uh, there were sort of Berber tribes led by Jews or Jewish Berber tribes, you could say, um, in ancient times. Um, interestingly enough, you know, when, when the Jews were kicked out of Spain and they came to Morocco, they, uh, the, our tour guide showed us how they changed the architecture of the, of the um, cities in the sense that the sort of general Arab architecture was that you have a closed wall and a door. And, um, you know, once you get inside the courtyard, that's where you have the house and a fountain and a well. And, um, you know, that's how most houses were made. But the, the Jews were used to having balconies in order to create more living space. And so their balconies hung over the street. And so people could see them for the first time. And uh, this was kind of a sign of modernization. And, um, you know, the, the guide pointed us in, you know, in the old parts of the city where you see houses with balconies, he says, these are Jewish homes, you know, from hundreds of years ago, which was kind of interesting. Um, uh, there were at the most about 250,000 uh, Jews living in Morocco, uh, which would be, um, you know, somewhere, I don't know, maybe around 5% of the population as a whole. Um, they didn't all come when the Spanish kicked them out in 1492. Many came before that because the Inquisition in Spain got started really in the 1300s. So, you know, Jews were kind of making their way out of Spain for 200 years, and many of them went to Morocco. Um, uh, in 1948, when Israel was established, uh, there were Jews who left. And every single war that Israel had with the Arab world, in other words, the 48 war, the 56 war, the 67 war, and the 73 war, um, you know, after each war, there were some riots, uh, anti-Jewish riots in Morocco and the Jews picked up and left. Uh, there was a strong Zionist movement which kind of recruited Jews to come to Israel. And um, it, it's kind of said that the well-off Jews went to France and the poorer ones went to Israel. Um, and, uh, France and North and South America as well. Uh, there were some Moroccan Jews who left in the 19th century and went to South America and established kind of businesses and settlements uh, in Argentina and Brazil. And they have their own special uh, interesting history in Peru as well. Um, but wherever they went, they kept very strong ties to the royal family. And the royal family in Morocco still very much appreciates this support and these ties. And there is a strong connection between the Moroccan Jewish community abroad and the kingdom uh, itself. There are thousands, and I mean thousands, of um, visitors who come every year. 70,000 Moroccan Jews go to visit Morocco every year. That's a huge number and a huge help to the economy. And when I was there, we saw, you know, in hotels, uh, huge, uh, uh, you know, groups of these people. And there are special days, saints days, where they make pilgrimages to the tombs of their, of their sort of saints, we'll call them and called Hilula, and uh, you know, everybody knows they're coming, put it like that. In Canada, uh, Moroccan Jews came especially after the 1967 war, 
And, um, you know, in Montreal, uh, they are such a large part of the Jewish community, maybe 25,000 at least, uh, that they're an important part of the community. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the Moroccan Jews in Israel, of course, are the largest group of people uh, uh, of Moroccan emigres, and um, they were you know, when they arrived, they arrived so many and, and in a way so poor that they were sort of dumped out onto uh, development towns. They were put in places where Israel wanted to hold the land but had no jobs for them. And uh, for those of you who saw the movie, The, uh, the Unorthodox, uh, about the founding of the Shas political party, where religious Moroccan Jews established their own political party um, kind of to counter the, the um, patronization of the Ashkenazi religious party. And, um, you know, they did phenomenally successful in the, and they're still around today. Uh, we're talking now uh, 40 years later, more or less. So um, they are part and parcel of Israel life. They tend always to vote for the Likud or the right-wing parties. Um, because the left-wing parties, when they arrived, were in power, and the Labour Party in Israel kind of, uh, as I said, pushed them aside, didn't recognize them, didn't appreciate them, and uh, they were pushed to the right. Um, you know, some of their strong Arab, anti-Arab feelings are there too, although they don't have um, anti-Arab feelings toward the Moroccan, um, you know, as I said, the Moroccan country, but, you know, more toward, uh, more uh, against the Arabs uh, living around them. Um, the, Moro the Moroccan government has restored 110 synagogues in Morocco. They established a Jewish museum in Casablanca, the only Jewish museum in any Arab country. Um, and they welcome uh, Jewish visitors uh, extremely well. You know, you can't pass a store, a souvenir store anywhere in Morocco without seeing uh, stars of David and candelabras and, you know, st stuff that is modern but made to look old and, um, and, and, and some very old uh, antiques belonging to uh, the Jewish community that left the country. So, uh, as I said, for, for a Jewish tourist, it's extremely heartening to go there. And um, the Moroccan government uh, recognizes its Jewish history as Moroccan history. So anywhere you go, any tour guide will tell you, um, you know, how much the Jews contributed to Moroccan life in, as a whole. Um, the uh, ties with Israel were always sort of ongoing, but a bit under the covers. Um, and uh, the Islamists are a strong political party, as I said, so they discourage these ties um, uh, because the Islamists said, well, you know, when Israel uh, recognizes a Palestinian state, then Morocco will recognize Israel. Um, <clears throat> but there's so much trade and travel between the two countries uh, that, um, uh, you know, the incentive that Morocco received to recognize the Western Sahara was so huge uh, in that country that they figured it was a small price to pay to recognize Israel, especially since 
Um, you know, uh, the United Arab Emirates did it, since Sudan did it, since Bahrain did it, and since everyone knows that Israel and Saudi Arabia are talking, uh, you know, between themselves. And so, um, you know, that brings us up till now. And, um, you know, I will just repeat again what a wonderful place it was to visit. Uh, so many interesting things that we saw there, including these fossil, they, they, they have huge um, uh, sheets of rock, which have tons of fossils embedded in them. And these sheets of rock are cut carefully and polished to make the fossils come out. And you can buy, um, you know, any manner and size of black stone with beautiful fossils in it. Um, you know, as souvenirs, it's just so remarkable to see. So uh, let me check my watch for one second. Here we are, three o'clock. So um, comments, questions, um, um, you know, that uh, I'll just add that any sort of Western tourist, given the standard tour of Morocco, is taken to one of these restored synagogues. And um, you know, as I say, the guides, the, the, the guides on these tours don't know if any of their uh, clients are Jewish, and yet they speak in such, um, in such positive way uh, toward the uh, Jewish community of Morocco that once was there. There still are somewhere around 3,500 Jews still living in Morocco itself, meaning it's the largest Jewish community in an Arab country. They have schools, they have kosher food, they have all uh, of the uh, sort of community assets that they need. And, um, you know, there are people who are there because they just want to stay and, you know, but their ties to the outside world, to France, to Canada, to Israel are huge. And there's so much travel between all, all the three places that, um, you know, uh, they are sort of integrated into the general Jewish Moroccan community um, abroad. Uh, in fact, COVID came to Morocco because uh, for, uh, Moroccan Jews went to, no, French Jews came for a wedding in Morocco. French Moroccan Jews came to Morocco for a wedding, brought COVID to Morocco, left, and then the COVID stayed. And that's how it got started. And unfortunately, some very prominent members of the community died right away in the uh, COVID uh, epidemic. So, okay, I'm ready to hear any questions, comments about Morocco um, or anything else that you'd like to ask. I'm, I'm here for you guys. So we'll wait a few seconds, but uh, I will mention a few th things so people will know about them. Uh, the TBS- Speak louder, Angela, yeah, speak a bit louder. Oh, okay. So, the TBS, the Telephone Broadcasting Service Line, will be happening throughout the holiday season. Uh, that would be weekdays from um, at two o'clock from Monday to Friday. And also, I would like to mention that the library, um, a, a little bit about the library schedule. Um, so the library will be open for phone and email reference service and no contact pickups from December 27th to the 30th and January 3rd to the 8th from 10 to 6, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And there will be for December 24, 25, 26, 31st, 
1st and 2nd of January. There'll be phone and email reference services only from noon to five. So you will be able to pick up your items at the library from 10 to six on December 27th to the 30th and from January 3rd to the 8th uh, from 10 to six. And you will be able to get some of your questions answered on December 24th to the 26th and December 31st, January 1st and January 2nd from noon to five if you phone in an email reference. All this information is available in the library website. That's all I wanted to say. Good, good. Hey, I just wanted to inform the people because I know right. a lot of people were wondering about the holiday period in right. the library. It's holidays so. and obviously the services have to be, have to be reduced. Um, you know, everyone knows this, so. <clears throat> is uh, any are there any comments or questions that anybody might have i don't see any questions um so would you have any uh last well, words i or? would like to i'd like to just first of all thank everybody for tuning in um i'd also like to ask you um if you have a subject that you'd like me to speak about you can forward it to angela and she'll get a hold of me or you can send it to me directly um, you know, I'm willing to speak about pretty well anything you might be interested in. Um, and um, I just, um, you know, to get back to um, what I was talking about before, um, if uh, you, you know, once this nightmare is over and you want to stretch your wings and say, you know, let me disappear somewhere and uh, go somewhere a bit out of the ordinary. Um, Morocco is a great place to go. Uh, the flights, you know, we flew directly from Montreal to Casablanca. It was a wonderful, straight, nonstop flight. They have uh, unbelievable hotels there. Um, they have um, something called a Riyadh, which uh, is in the old city, like all the cities of Martin, you know, Fez and Meknes and Marrakesh are old cities. And inside those old cities, they have restored, we'll call, I won't call them palaces, we'll call them sort of stately homes that were restored completely. And it's just unbelievable. You, if, you look at, if you look it up, R-I-A-D, um, you know, uh, they make them into hotels, so sort of small boutique style hotels with fountains and with, with amazing tile work. Uh, just to stay in one of these places and walk around an old city, uh, you know, looking at the marketplace and looking at the stores is just the, the most amazing experience. So, um, you know, if you, you, if that sort of appeals to you, I would give it, you know, my two thumbs up. <laughs>